Thank you for welcoming me this morning to Otley. Um, I don't know if you noticed, I've seen um, a strange thing on the way over. I don't know if it were a UFO or something, but like a large orange thing in the sky. <laughs> Quite a warm feeling to it. I've not, I've not seen it for a while. I don't, I don't know what it is, whether it's a Stockley or something, but... Uh, I used to work here quite a few years ago, did quite a lot of work over the road, just behind Wiegmann's Butchers and luckily it was on the last two days of the job that I discovered Wiegmann's, because if it had been a few weeks before I would have been about 20 stone. It's one of those places you walk in don't you and everything looks amazing, you could just eat everything so. No thanks for having me but this morning we're going to talk from Matthew 20, um, it's the parable of the labourers in the vineyard. A parable literally means to cast alongside. And it's a simple story, cast alongside a truth in order to greater illustrate that truth. And in our parable this morning, the Lord Jesus is illustrating something for us of the kingdom of heaven. But more broadly, something about one of the greatest attributes of the Almighty himself. And that attribute, I believe, is the sovereign grace of God. Grace simply means undeserved favour. Or in a biblical sense, it's God's blessing those who don't really deserve it. When studying the scriptures, we should always look at the preceding passages just to get the context, to see why it's been spoken, who's been spoken to, and it gives us help in understanding what we're reading. So our context is Matthew 19, and the Lord Jesus is preaching in the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. Among the multitudes that followed him were the Jewish religious leadership, the Pharisees, a lot of various different people, some of his disciples, and many children. The Lord comes across a rich young ruler who says to him, what good things shall I do to gain eternal life? His first mistake being that there was something that he could do to attain salvation. He then brags about his obedience at keeping the Ten Commandments and that kind of thing, assuming himself to be worthy of the kingdom of heaven. Yet the Lord stops him in his tracks, doesn't he? And tells him that if he wants to attain perfection in this way, he must give away all his belongings to the poor. This is not a command or an example for any of us to do the same thing, but what Jesus is simply making the point of is that this man's material possessions was his idol. It was his wealth that came between him and God. Sadly, the man walked away from Christ and assumably eternal life. He thought he could earn his salvation by his good works. Listen to this, Peter boastfully comes along. See, we, we have left all, so what do we get? And what Peter is doing here is like, unlike the rich young ruler, he's saying that we've given everything away, so what do we get? And despite walking with Jesus so long, inadvertently, what Peter does is fall into the same trap, doesn't he? What do our works gain us? Jesus answers that in the regeneration, it's when all things are made new, they will have their eternal reward. They will receive a hundredfold 
from what they have given. They will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But then he goes on to warn that whoever shall be first shall be last, and those who are last shall be first. Though clearly our labour for Christ, once saved, will gain as eternal rewards. Salvation itself is absolutely nothing of our doing. It's purely by the grace of God. And the Lord Jesus' message today is a warning against pride and boastful arrogance. So with all that in mind, if you have your Bibles, please, if you turn to Matthew chapter 20. Um, somebody's going to come and read, I think, from verse 1 to 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire labourers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the labourers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too. Whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You, you go into the vineyard too. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the labourers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they received more, but each of them received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only made only works only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat but he replied to them friend i'm doing you no wrong did you not agree with me for a denarius take what belongs to you and go i choose to give to this last work as i give to you am i not allowed to do what i do with what belongs to me or do you begrudge my generosity so the last we first and the first last the first thing that strikes me when reading this parable is what an injustice. If I worked on my building site all day and somebody came in for the last hour of the day and got paid the same as me, I'd be pretty unhappy. I would too would be complaining like these labourers. You see, from our human understanding, it seems so wrong, doesn't it? But the parables are not intended to show us human understanding. They're intended to show us something of God's nature. The difference between our infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect creator and we, his imperfect, finite, fallen creation is truly vast. The Lord explains this in simple terms, speaking through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55, and he says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts and just a mere glimpse of the heavens and its enormity is such that even the first star would take four years to get there traveling at the speed of light 186,000 miles a second there's billions and billions of stars with an average of 30 trillion miles between each one of them 
The vastness of the heavens are beyond human comprehension. And the Lord uses that picture to teach us just how little we are, how little we know in comparison to the Almighty. So our parable is set within a vineyard. Just studying the symbolism behind a vineyard is an interesting study of itself. How often we see the vineyard in God's word pointing to different aspects. Planting a vineyard, reaping the harvest and enjoying its produce is often used as a term of God's blessing. But also it's used in a term of God's judgment. Isaiah 63 speaks of the Messiah trampling the winepress of God's wrath alone or in the gospels we see the lord jesus calling himself the vine and we are the branches and how he he prunes us that we may bear much fruit as we go on through matthew we get to matthew 21 and we see another vineyard parable which perfectly parallels isaiah 5 where god speaks about the vineyard he planted on a fruitful hill he planted the choicest wine and despite his efforts it still brought forth wild grapes. So he dug it up and destroyed it and commanded no rain fall upon it and the land became desolate. And here in this particular illustration we, we see that the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heavenly armies, his vineyard is a house of Israel. And now we see in history the rebellion of these people and the desolation of the land in judgment imperfectly fulfilled prophecy. And yet after laying waste for almost 2,000 years, Israel's desolate landscape, likened by writer Mark Twain in 1867, to be as the face of the moon. Yet today, Israel, Israel's vineyards are blossoming once again. Purely by the grace of God, despite their disobedience, and once again the Lord is blessing those lands and those people. Some commentators see Israel as the vineyard or the labourers as the children of Israel. I wouldn't agree with that. You can make a case. I do not think that's our parable's primary meaning. But we do see parallels with Israel's and the Gentiles, the non-Jewish world. And that at the very least serves as a good illustration pointing to a greater truth as we look at this story. See, the labourers who worked all day had an almost pharisaical attitude, didn't they? Looking down at everyone else from a point of religious pride, so often rebuked by Jesus in Scripture. After all, it was to Israel who were given the covenants. Why should the Gentiles sneak in the back door? In Matthew 7, John the Baptist rebuked the Jewish leadership for such an attitude. He told them, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And don't think to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Because the Lord is able to raise children to Abraham from these very stones. You see, they thought they had some divine right as children of Abraham. They had the covenants. They were given the law, the commandments. They were hundreds of years in slavery. They were brought through the Red Seas. They were brought through the wilderness into the promised lands. They put in the hard work. And the Gentiles get saved by what? By grace. By undeserved favour. 
Romans 11 tells us the salvation of the Gentile world is in order to provoke the Jews to jealousy. And in one of the greatest future acts of grace this world will ever see, once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, at the very last hour, Romans 11 tells us, all Israel shall be saved. Albeit a remnant, those refined by fire, will look upon him who they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will turn to their Messiah and accept his salvation. Not by religion, not by the law, their works, but purely by the grace of God. And this jealousy the Jews have over the non-Jewish world is reflected in verse 12 of our passage. As those who came in to work in the vineyard late, having faith that they'd receive what's right, were envied by those who worked all day. Why? Because both get exactly the same reward. For example, the greatest preachers or evangelists of history, the Spurgeons, the Moody's, the Billy Grahams, are no more saved positionally than the sinner who repents and puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning at this very church. You see, salvation is not found in our works and our efforts or our obedience. Salvation is only found in one person. When we become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous in spite of who we are. Does the scripture not say, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved? Can this really be true? Let's look at the account of the thief on the cross. Crucified alongside Jesus, a convicted criminal, a thief, Sentenced to death, yet moments before he left this world, he realised his own guilt in light of the Lord Jesus Christ's innocence. He recognised Jesus as Lord and heard from the lips of the Saviour himself those amazing words, Today you will be with me in paradise. The thief soon became absent with the body but present with the Lord. He put absolutely nothing in, but by the grace of God, at the very last hour, he was given entrance into the kingdom of heaven. In a very personal example to me, my own dad with me today, rejected God for 76 years. In the last decade, he saw firsthand the transforming work of the Lord Jesus Christ on his once drug-taking, drunk, violent son. And yet he was still unrepentant. But more recently he witnessed the strength of faith of his born again wife of 57 years as she took her last breaths in this world. She went home to be with the Lord in glory and a few months later the scales fell off his eyes. This 76 year old sinner was brought to repentance and humbly received the gift of eternal life. The hymn my mum chose for her own funeral, unknowing, amazing grace. It turned out even more amazing than even she dreamed. So what greater truth does our parable show us? It shows that it doesn't matter how much work we put in. It doesn't matter how much time we put in. It doesn't matter our religious background. Salvation is purely by the grace of God. An undeserved gift paid for by another. The one that purchased our salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. The cost of that salvation 
is his shed blood of the Son of God himself. Let me share with you a true story, or a parable if you like, pointing to a greater truth of the unfathomable grace of God. The Nuremberg trials were where 21 of Hitler's henchmen stood trials for crime against humanity, namely genocide, the murder of 6 million Jewish people and more. Hitler, Himmler and Goebbels had all committed suicide. Of the next 21, highest ranking in that regime faced justice. The story is told of a Lutheran pastor from New York, Henry Gerecke. He was a son of German immigrants and spoke perfect German. He seemed like the perfect candidate to go to Nuremberg in 1945 to minister to these men accused of crimes against humanity. Gerecke went and first met them in his cells. It was used from New York to teaching and reaching people in prisons. He went to their cells and he was frightened to death. Even the smell of their breath filled him with such fear. Such was the immensity of the crimes and the evil these men had committed. He didn't see himself as being able to judge. That was God's job alone. He would simply be there to care for his souls care for their souls, much like a pastor does when he goes to hospital in somebody's last days. Through it all, Pastor Gareca received hate mail from America, calling him a Nazi lover for the fact he ministered to Nazi lieutenants who were responsible for the death of millions. He built such a relationship with these men that when his wife wrote to him asking him to come home, the 21 wrote a letter and each personally signed it, begging him to stay, as they'd come to love him. Inside the Nuremberg jail, two empty cells were knocked through, creating a 169-foot chapel. They put chairs in it, an altar, some candles, and a small organ. Gerecker wondered how many of these Nazis, whose collective crimes were beyond comprehension, would in fact attend his weekly services. Thirteen of the men attended and continued coming for the following weeks. Week by week the hearts of some of the most evil men in history began to change. Fritz Saukel was once head of labour supply for Hitler. He worked millions of slave labourers to death without mercy. He was called the cruelest slaver since the pharaohs in Egypt. Yet Saukel, a father of ten, with a Christian wife, knelt in prayer with the pastor and prayed, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Pastor Gareca testified to his sincerity. One after another, they begged God for mercy. And before they were put to death, eight former Nazis, some of the most evil men in history, repented of their sins and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and took communion with the pastor they then lost their lives but they saved their souls they begged God for mercy and they got it how do we feel about that 
Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever. Note there's no conditions attached to the grace and mercy of God that brings salvation. It's a human reaction, isn't it? That when we're faced with such grace, we don't like it, do we? We push back against it. Yet were it not for such grace, none of us would be able to be saved. I've seen it as stumbling block as people wrestle with the things of God. You wear things like this. What, what sort of God would save the Nazi war criminal? Well, would the same God save the big time drug dealer? Both are responsible for many deaths. What sort of God would save the bank robber? Or what about the man who gets paid too much and says nothing? Both are thieves. What sort of God would save the lying woman? Lying to her husband while spending time with another? Or what about the man who simply sleeps in and is late for work but blames the traffic? Both are liars. See, at what point does God draw the line on that scale? The simple answer is that all sin separates us from the holiness of God. And the wages of sin is death. In our parable, the landowner's payment is a picture of salvation. If I was paying, the early starters would get a full day's wage. Those who come at dinner time and get half a day. If you turn up for work with one hour to go, you're not even getting in. But my ways are not God's ways. You see, none of us has anything to offer in our claim to enter the kingdom of heaven. The song goes, Lord, I come without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. God doesn't give to, grant us a gift of salvation based on our performance. In, on our behaviour in this world that's not a gift that would be a wage we don't earn a free gift Ephesians 2 for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God not of works lest any man should boast interestingly that was the verse that my dad were given as he were baptised we see this grace playing out throughout history. 2 Chronicles 33 documents the account of King Manasseh, son of Hezekiah. King Manasseh lived about 2,600 years ago and was probably the most evil king Judah ever had. He built altars and worshipped false gods. He practiced fortune telling, witchcraft, sorcery. He consulted mediums and spiritists. He led the whole nation into sin and idolatry he even sacrificed his own children through fire to false gods and yet we're told that after being judged and taken to Babylon in captivity towards the end of his life King Manasseh finally repented before the one true God the account in various books says that the Lord heard his entreaty and his supplication. It paints a picture of one humbly on his knees begging God for mercy. We can reasonably conclude from the scriptures that Manasseh, the most idolatrous ruler 
Israel ever had will be in heaven. So don't tell me you're too bad to save. Because my Saviour's grace is far greater than your sin. I know this is really difficult. It's hard for us to comprehend such love, isn't it? His ways are so far above our ways. If we're honest, we don't want these people to benefit from such mercy, do we? Or are we now in the position of those labourers who worked all day? Is our eye now evil? As we're faced with the goodness of God? We come to church every Sunday. I've been here for years. We feed the poor. I lead a, I lead a group. Well, I'm the pastor. I'm the preacher. Surely we're deserving of the kingdom of heaven. Sorry, but the Bible says that all your dirty rags, sorry, all your righteous acts are like dirty rags before him to whom we must give account. If God truly gave us what we deserved, we'd all be in hell now. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us has sinned. There's none good, not one. We're by nature enemies of God. It's such a terrible desperate situation isn't it Ephesians 2 again but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us even when we were dead in sins made us alive together with Christ for by grace you have been saved the grace of God is simply not fathomable by human reasoning that's why I think the parables are so helpful how can such an awesome, righteous, holy God love such fallen creatures and even the very worst of us, as we've heard? It's because God is love. It's an infinite and unconditional love, a sacrificial love. The closest I can imagine from a human sense, and it's not even close, is the father-child relationship. Not again, how many more times? What have I told you? And even though they're worthy of punishment, all you want them to really do is just admit it and turn to you and seek forgiveness. What sort of father when their child admits their fault and truly says sorry will truly not give their forgiveness? This is not a license to do what you want, Chloe. My ways are not God's ways. <laughs> Remember. 1 John 1 9 if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins such is the grace of God we cannot out sin God's mercy I repeat my saviour's grace is far greater than your sin the landowner an illustration of God makes it perfectly clear in verse 15 that he gives his sovereign grace freely to whoever he chooses those who worked all day and those who worked under the last hour are both equal recipients of God's grace and equal heirs of salvation the call to salvation in the kingdom of heaven goes out to all the living whosoever wills let him come and take from the water of life freely if you all listen to this message and have not accepted God's unconditional gift 
forgiveness of sins through the Lord Jesus Christ by trusting in him and having certain assurance of the kingdom of heaven when that last hour comes and we don't know when that is then you are being given chance today you are here for a reason the Bible says today is a day of salvation maybe the Lord is graciously calling you right now so I just invite you to pray along with me with a humble and thankful heart and receive by the grace of God forgiveness of sins and everlasting life in glory can we just pray Lord be merciful to me a sinner I've lived life that you give my own way and I've pushed you out you know everything I've ever done every thought Lord I'm so sorry I'm desperately in need of your forgiveness thank you for your grace that we've learned of this morning and that you've not given up on me Lord God I humbly accept your free gift of salvation through the finished work of your son Jesus Christ who took upon himself my sin and died in my place Lord Jesus I invite you into my heart save me please and whatever days I have left may they be pleasing to you Amen It's a common saying that when we get to heaven we might be surprised that who's there or surprised that who's not there we might be surprised at the absence of the popes in all their religious pomp. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, with all their do's and their don'ts. Or the famous televangelists, or the pastors of the mega churches. Or those who just simply do a lot of work for charity. But we might be more surprised to see King Manasseh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the Nazi war criminals the gypsy world heavyweight boxing champion or the God rejecting ex-hooligan clothed in robes of white righteousness in the kingdom of heaven so the last shall be first and the first shall be last in closing picture the world as one great big vineyard today is the day of harvest the grapes waiting to fall are the souls of men they're everywhere in massive obedience they're out there they're in your workplaces they're in your families they may even be in this church the landowner needs more workers to reap these souls for the kingdom of heaven are we the laborers who are stood outside the vineyard idle one of my favourite hymns says this the fields are white unto harvest but oh the labourers are so few so Lord I give myself to help the reaping to gather precious souls unto you the Lord is calling every one of us are we going to respond that call and get to work his gracious reward is waiting even to those who come in at the very last hour Amen thank you